Let me ask you something. What if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? That would probably creep you out. Well, that's exactly what happens every time you go online. Your internet provider stores logs of every website you've ever visited and can legally sell this data to anyone. Worse yet, the government can obtain your data via bulk FISA order, even if you're not personally suspected of any crime. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com slash mullen right now and find out how you can get three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mullen. Protect your data and get three months for free today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen talks freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Wednesday, November 16th. A very happy birthday to the Duke. And today I wanted to talk about a couple of things. What's foremost on my mind, of course, is the Ukraine war and the scare yesterday regarding Polish missile, uh, I'm sorry, possibly Russian missiles hitting Ukraine. And you notice that 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 story suddenly unraveled as soon as Biden got his request in for $37 billion more in welfare for Lockheed Martin, Martin and Raytheon and others. And of course, the fact that these were not Russian missiles, that they were actually Ukrainian missiles bombing their own supposed ally by mistake will not stop that funding from going through. But I, wa- I want to talk a little bit about just the whole thrust of the Ukraine war, of, of Washington, D.C.'s proxy war in Ukraine that Washington, D.C. started and that Putin, of course, either foolishly or not, took the bait and escalated with his invasion. And there's a lot of theories about what's the end game here? What, what do the so-called globalist elites want and I, I want to tell a story about an early part of my career that, believe it or not, is relevant to this, I think, or it's at least an alternative explanation to what's going on. So I've heard all kinds of Stratego 4D chess, whatever, theories about these so-called elites and that they have this master plan and we're all going to end up on the global plantation and all kinds of other things. And the, the problem I have, of course, with a lot of the theories against these people, whom I don't like one bit and do believe are evil in, in many ways, but there's so much anti-capitalism mixed into the resistance to this that I'm, I have to be suspicious of that too. Not necessarily suspicious of motives, but suspicious of thinking. Like, a whole bunch of the anti-war, anti-Ukraine war writing is by communists who, you know, see this as, as part of the capitalist system. So that's, you know, 
there's flaws in their thinking. So there, there could be flaws in their analysis as well. And of course, you have the whole anti-capitalist right that since Donald Trump's emergence on the right has allowed them to go back to their anti-capitalist roots, you know, in this country, starting with the Federalists, but going back long before that, remember that the natural economic system of conservatism is mercantilism. And if you doubt that for a minute, read my book, just read the free excerpts from my book. Everything that you need to, to prove that statement I just made is, is in the free excerpt. So anyway, I want to talk a little bit about what I learned about government early in my career, just before and just after I discovered or was told by somebody else that I was a libertarian. So back in the 1990s, I had several upper middle and you know executive jobs in the managed care industry. And I was quite a young feller and quite a ambitious person for the corporate ladder. So I tended to start out at kind of the sales or representative level and work my way up. And I, I actually did that with the first HMO I worked for. It wasn't actually an HMO technically, but it was a managed care health insurance. And let me just say as an aside, all of the anti-managed care thinking is also just left-wing anti-capitalist crap that most of the anti-capitalist right buys into. Of course, government-mandated managed care would be a bad thing, but the managed care concept itself, there's absolutely nothing sinister about it. It's basically a contract that says you will, to get the lower, much lower rates that we're going to charge you, you will allow a primary care doctor to direct your care. Not an MBA working at the insurance company, a doctor. And I can tell you from the inside that even when it came to things like claims appeals, a physician always made the final decision whether to deny or pay a claim. And, you know, when it came to denying a claim, I used to sit on the appeals board in both managed care organizations I work for. And I can tell you the kinds of things that would get denied, like a bilateral bunionectomy. What does that mean? It means an older person goes into the hospital to get a bunion removed and the podiatrist's or the hospital uh, uh, physician staff decides to take both uh, bunions out of both feet at the same time. Why would they do that? So that the patient couldn't go home, let one foot recover, come back and have the other one removed. Now, it is a basic standard in medical care that you never take an ambulatory patient and make them non-ambulatory. Anybody with elderly parents or grandparents who is at all involved in their care, this, this doesn't even need to be explained. You know how bad it is when an older person becomes non-ambulatory, and for anyone who doesn't know what that means, can't walk on their own, either on their own or with assistance from a walker or a cane or crutches. So this is the kind of thing that would get denied, and it was always from badly run hospitals that were revenue-starved and they would do this so that the person would become an inpatient because you couldn't discharge a non-ambulatory inpatient. So the correct way 
to do this, not from a financial perspective, but from a medical clinical perspective is to do one foot, let them go home, never make them bedridden where all kinds of other things could happen and then have them come back at a later date and take out the bunions on the other foot. So this is not the only claims that would be denied, but they were claims that were that cut and dried, shouldn't be paid to the hospital. And this would be something that the hospital would not be able to bill the patient for either. They just would have to take the hit for that bad behavior, for that terrible medicine. So I used to see those, if there was any doubt at all of medical necessity, even if it was something specifically not covered by the plan, the medical director would just, being a physician, would just say, just pay it. I mean, unless it was some huge thing and no huge thing would ever be something not covered. So I mean, the whole storyline behind managed care was driven by the left, by the communists. You know, let's just call them what they are. And, you know, like I said, most people buy in. And this whole idea of MBAs making decisions on their care, on people's medical care, is just totally ridiculous. It's, it never happened. Never happened in any HMO. Never happened in any PPO. I think those are the ones I work for. This is going on. 25 years ago, but they were PPOs, I believe. So getting back to my subject. So I worked in these places. By the way, I was an English major, not even an MBA. So had I been making the decisions, it would have been worse than you think. I was there to kind of give input on the operational ability for the plan to support certain things, any information I might have about the case. And there was usually a nurse case manager that was assigned. So the whole appeals board was doctors, nurses, and I was I would take the place of maybe legal as well because I would know the contracts. I managed provider relations. So I negotiated the contracts with the doctors and hospitals. And for the first one that I worked for, it was a startup. I started out as a rep on the road and actually would put together the whole network of hospitals and doctors for a new county that was opening up in New York. These were all, like all insurance companies at the time, statewide insurances, so they were limited to New York State. And my travel in those days, thankfully, was limited to New York State. So about the worst I'd have to do is go down to New York. And at one time, I was flying down there on Wednesday mornings and staying Wednesday and Thursday. When I became the acting chief operating officer, I would go down, you know, do to work at the New York office. And this was in the Channon building, for anyone who knows Manhattan, it's right across the street from Grand Central. So being a young 20-something, it was uh, rather exciting to get down to the Big Apple, back when the Big Apple was a lot more enjoyable, and spend all day on Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, and I'd fly out on like the you know early evening plane to get back to Buffalo. So anyway... I did these jobs just as I was discovering or was told that I was a libertarian and an anecdote I think I've shared already, and I'll share again if I get an email from somebody saying I want to hear it, but I got my first and only government job, and it was for Erie County, and I and I, it was for the Department of Social Services, believe it or not, and I was kind of like a project manager which meant I got assigned to projects. 
And the first one was to build a managed care for foster children because as bad as the foster child system was, the medical care for them was much worse. And of course, that's not all just incompetence of the government. It's the nature of the beast. They're moving from family to family and place to place. And there was no, you know, continuity of care. So they wanted to establish and did establish a pediatrician practice that was dedicated to all the foster children in the county. And they needed people with managed care experience, management experience. And so I got this job and we did that. And the next thing I was assigned to was to study the Medicaid problem. Let's take a short break for this important message. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low-quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders that's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash minicoders and start your free trial today. So at the time, Medicaid was taking up as far as the cost of the county. And I should say, this is a federal program, but New York is one of the states where, you know, the state pays half of the cost of Medicaid and the feds pay half the cost. That's how it is for all 50 states. But there are some states where the state makes each county pay for their share of the state's half. So in other words, you take all of the Medicaid spending in New York and you cut it in half and the feds pay half and the state pays half. And out of that half the state pays, it charges half of each county's expenses to the county and makes the county pay out of their revenues. So this doesn't make a lot of sense. Medicaid doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a terrible program. But in any case, it was assigned under this project to try and come up with recommendations to control the spending. And at the time, the spending had grown so much that all of the property taxes for the county were, were spent by Medicaid and then a good share of the sales taxes. So counties get their money from property taxes and then part of the sales taxes and it had taken up all of the property tax. So we used to say, you didn't have a property tax in Erie County. You had a Medicaid tax. And I'm sure this was true for most 
counties in New York state. So, and I'm not saying that they took the property tax money and diverted it there. I'm just saying that the amount collected for property taxes, Medicaid was well above that and eating into the sales tax. It was the, it's, it still remains the biggest line item on every state's budget besides education. The other completely failed government program, you know, where the services get worse every year and the price keeps going up. So, and that's not a knock on the teachers, by the way, or really even the administrators. It's a knock on the system. It has bad incentives. Nobody goes out of business if they do a bad job. And that's why it doesn't work. It's the same for Medicare and Medicaid and anything else the government does. And then the other little factoid I wanted to share was that the insurance companies, at least in New York State at the time, and again, this is in the 1990s, were mandated, and I think they probably still are, to have a certain percentage of the people they covered be Medicaid employees, or I'm sorry, Medicaid beneficiaries, members, whatever you want to call them. They had to have them. You couldn't, you couldn't say we're not going to be in that business line, which led to another whole drama story with the second one I worked with, which I won't go into now. But yeah, you're basically forced to have these people on your plan. And of course, the health insurance industry is dominated by nurses and doctors, but more nurses. And of course, they thought they were doing a wonderful thing by covering these people anyway. But of course, they were very expensive. And one of the reasons for the the primary driving reason and the reason they wanted to get Medicaid people on managed care was because they used ERs for their managed care. Somebody with Medicaid, had their kid has you know, garden variety, ear infection, they take them to the ER. Why? Because so few doctors took Medicaid. Now, the doctors didn't have to accept Medicaid, be in the program, and the doctors didn't do it because they used to pay them $7 a visit, which even in 1993 was not very much. So you had very few doctors who took it, and then people were going to the ER for their care, And of course, you're getting crappy care. Again, no knock on the ER doctors, but they rotate in and out. You're seeing someone different all the time. You don't have somebody who's familiar with your family and with your medical history. You got someone looking at you cold and then you got an ear infection. So, you know, you're going to wait for several hours while the people with the gunshot wounds and heart attacks are taken care of first. So it's a horrible situation. And the managed care companies, and, and I, I was with one at one time that only took Medicaid patients to start out as new, new program, would go to the doctor and say, look, we're going to pay you capitation when this was brand new, and you're going to get so many dollars per month, whether you see these people or not, and you know, you're going to average about $40 a visit based on utilization. That was the projection we told them. It might have been 39 compared to 7 and, and my experience was it usually was a lot more because the Medicaid population, we could never get them into preventative care. So we used to offer all kinds of incentives, especially for pregnant mothers, to get them to go to their prenatal visits because if they went to all their prenatal visits, their outcomes were far better. And of course, this saved the insurance company money But it also (laughs) made people a lot healthier. Just one more example of the invisible hand. Health insurance is the ultimate example of the invisible hand. And 
if you are swallowing the crap that comes out of Hollywood, like the Rainmaker, hook, hook, line, and sinker, that insurance companies make money by denying you care. That's so retarded. Excuse my French, but it is. Anytime an insurance company denies you care today, it costs them more money tomorrow. This is a basic fact. Health insurance companies always want to put you into the most proactive care that they can that that is available. So if you've got a problem and you haven't addressed it already and you got to go to the hospital, they want you to go to the hospital today before you don't go tomorrow and get way sicker and way more expensive. They want you to go to the doctor for preventative, you know, well visits. They want you to go to prenatal care. I used to go around and deliver this toy we had. We had a we had a baby rattle that would be uh, if you went to your prenatal visit, there, it was in six pieces. And it wasn't a rattle, it was some other kind of toy. But it was a pretty cool thing for a baby to have and didn't cost that much, but it was it cost a lot for, you know, a regular person to go buy in the store, but didn't cost as much as like a prematurely delivered baby. So we would give one part of this toy to the mother every time she showed up for a prenatal and that would get people to go and it actually worked and it would keep babies from being you know it make more babies go to full term cut down on the premature rate whatever they called it I can't remember all the terminology from back then I used to know it all but we were always trying to get people into care and it's also not true we didn't want them to go to the hospital if if they had a a condition that rose to hospital care. We wanted to get them in as fast as possible and treat the disease as early as possible. This is how it works, folks. This is how you make money at insurance. And as it turned out, and and the founders of the second company I worked with actually went to Congress to complain to the Republican-dominated Congress about all of the anti-managed care rhetoric they said on their campaigns. And at the time, I believe the party leader was Dick Armey. He was either the whip or the majority leader, whatever. So I remember this meeting with one of the founders of this company I worked for when he was telling us the story of going to Congress and meeting with Dick Armey with a whole bunch of other executives from managed care companies and he's from around the country. And he's saying, you guys go out there and you repeat all this stuff to get elected. But every study shows that people on managed care plans have healthier outcomes by far than people on indemnity plans. And he, he said, Dick Army's reply was, well, you know, down in Texas, we like our pickup trucks. And, uh, you know, we have a saying down there, sometimes you're the bug and sometimes you're the windshield. And our vice president is like, how do, how do I get a job like this? What's that supposed to mean? That's not an answer. But of course, you know, the, the congressman didn't care. I mean, they, they listened to the, the managed care delegation with all their facts and figures about how this was actually good for people. And then they went out and destroyed the industry. And again, remember, this was with a Republican-dominated Congress and a, and a Democratic president for all those years in the 90s when they basically took the teeth out of managed care. And this was driven by left-wing capitalist rhetoric that Republicans were 
all too happy to go along with because deep in their hearts, they're anti-capitalists too. So what does this have to do with Ukraine? All right, let me get back to my government job. My second project was, was Medicaid. So I know I've been all over the place. But so when I started looking into ways that Medicaid, we could cut some costs besides managed care, which we were already doing. They were, you know, high penetration of Medicaid recipients were on managed care. We got this idea, what if we start managing chronic diseases, diseases that go very bad, but that are manageable and don't have to, I mean, nobody really should have to die of diabetes, we were saying, and also asthma and other diseases like that. What if we manage those? We did something to try and get these people into earlier care, you know, catch them before they go bad and start losing feet from diabetes and whatever. So even in the government, of course, with your friendly neighborhood skeptic involved, this idea lasted like 25 minutes at the county level because we took a look at the finances and we thought, well, something could be done here, but the cost of managing the people would outweigh the savings because Medicaid expenses were not largely spent. This was a small percentage of the Medicaid bill. There's a huge percentage in nursing home care. And I'm going to do a separate episode on what a scam that is. Government scam. Government public-private partnership scam, which is not fascism, by the way, technically, although it's the same ballpark as the great Vincent Vega would say. Again, a large part of the Medicaid expenses were emergency room care, which we're trying to address with managed care, and nursing home care, which was too good a scam for anybody to want to touch. So we decided we're not going to go down this road. And it's it's kind of the same thing with things like hearing aids and other kinds of peripheral care that Medicaid leaves to the states to decide whether they cover, you know, they make a big deal about New York, of course, was going to cover as much as possible, but New York is covering hearing aids and other things that you don't necessarily have to cover. But that's these are pennies on the dollar compared to what's going on with nursing homes and, and the ERs and other big chunks of the Medicaid bill. So, of course, I left this job after about a year and a half. And I eventually moved to Florida, where I started on a whole other career path out of the healthcare field. And then uh, while I was in Florida, of course, George W. Bush uh, was president for the first eight years or so. And it was years later that Bush makes this big deal about how they're going to cut Medicaid costs. And he says that one of the big parts of his plan is going to be to manage diabetes and asthma and other chronic diseases. And I'm thinking, well, that's so dumb. I mean, we it took us 20 minutes to figure out that's not going to do anything, you know, in, in Erie County. But here was, you know, the federal government touting it as this wonderful new idea they have that's supposedly going to save a lot of money. Now, they could have just been, they could have known it was baloney and you know, just said it anyway. It's not like they never do that. Like John McCain painting on cutting down fraud and abuse, right? Like, like that's going to make a big difference in a government that has trillion dollar programs 
welfare programs, including the military, that you know, you're going you're gonna to carve enough fraud and abuse out of the system to make a difference. But it struck me that this idea was still around when you know, it was obviously discredited and it was, it was something that we had moved on from years and years before. But you have to remember that when you work in a government agency, you don't, you don't have to move on from ideas that don't work. There's no incentive. You can sit there and work at a program that doesn't succeed and just say, well, you know, we didn't spend enough money on it or we didn't do, we don't have enough people on it. Now, one thing I did learn working in the healthcare field, which is so heavily regulated and dealing even when I was in the private sector, which was nine-tenths of my time in the healthcare industry, that as you go up in level in government, this was my theory at the time, and this is before I had ever even heard the word libertarian because I wasn't interested enough to, to know there was any such thing, that the people at the county level are reasonably competent and of course, they know the, the neighborhoods and the, the, the cities and towns that they're trying to manage. You could say, well, th- there shouldn't be management anyway. Fine. But you have degrees, okay? So the people I discovered in the county level were reasonably competent. And as you moved up to the state level, they became less competent to the point where you're saying, don't these people... No, I mean, can't they see that this is never going to work? And then when you got to the federal level, it was like, where, what planet are these people on? I mean, we would joke around about the stuff the feds were asking us to do or the kinds of questions they would send about certain things, you know, to the, the plan that we, we'd have to answer questions like every couple of months or so about this or that, the other thing, are you doing this? Are you doing that? And then these would get spread out to departments. If I'm managing a department, I would have to answer those questions, and that would go up to you know the vice president, and and that office would put together the answers to the government. So you know, again, I'm not a libertarian at the, at this time. I do have like a skeptical something's wrong side, and the only reason I could say I know that is that is that. I voted for Ross Perot <laughs> twice, not knowing he was a mercantilist or really much about anything other than I watched the debate or the debates he was in. And I saw him bring out the charts about the spending and that hit home to me. You know, I'm in my 20s, right? In my earlier 20s, I didn't vote in the 80s. I didn't vote for anybody. I had the good sense to know I was an idiot. And, uh, you know, this was not something that I should be involving myself in. Unfortunately, today's 20 and 21-year-olds and 18-year-olds even do not have similar wisdom. So in any case, I formed this whole opinion of, of the incompetence increasing exponentially as you went from local to county to state to federal. And I still know the people that worked in that office, in the government office, to this day. And I mean, they're all solid people. Again, philosophically, we could say, well, there shouldn't be a Department of Social Services or Healthcare. Hey, I'm all on board with that. But there, again, there's degrees. So the whole idea of federalism also gets you more competent government, even if it's doing some things that you don't necessarily want it to do. At least you have people who know the areas they're managing and know the people that they're managing rather than some clueless person 
in the federal government. And this brings me back to people like Victoria Newland and her ilk and everybody like her in the State Department. There's no reason to believe that the end of history narrative that came out around 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union, that the United States is an exceptional nation and that the United States has a special mission to keep the peace. The idea that the world has changed since then may not have penetrated into the State Department. I mean, they're very aware of China's economic rise and they're very aware, obviously, of Russia's ability to make war. But when they started this war, they may not have thought that that Putin would dare to do this. We're the exceptional nation. What we say goes. Just like managing diabetes could be effective in saving money for a government health program, we're just going to sanction and bully the Russians and they're going to do what we say because it's still 1991. That wouldn't surprise me among these people. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. How could I think of I was surprised that Putin invaded, to be honest with you, because not because I ever believed the exceptional nation narrative, but because he had shown so much restraint for so long. I mean, the U.S. State Department was provoking Russia for at least 20 years. I mean, you could argue it was even longer going back to the Clinton, late Clinton administration when NATO started moving eastward. And signing up countries they promised just a few years before they would never sign up. You could say that. But it really got bad in the 2000s when they overthrew Ukraine's government the first time. And they tried to make Georgia and all these border states from Russia. You know, Stalin was from Georgia. That's how Russian that is. And, uh, you know, the U.S. was Thomas Edlam, who's a, a occasional guest on the show, a friend, economist now and historian. He had a great meme about this where it's like the the two kids in the back seat, a boy and a girl. This could have been me and my sister. And the boy has got his finger like right on 
a half an inch from the girl's between her eyes, right? And and he says, "I'm not touching you." And that's kind of what the the U.S. stance to Russia has been for all of my adult life, just about all my adult life. Started my adult life if you started 18 during the Cold War. I grew up during the Cold War, and was just thought it was the greatest thing when the Berlin Wall fell. The Soviet Union's really over. We're going to be friends with them now. I thought this is the greatest thing. And then early on, I was, boy, D.C. is sure evil for provoking the Russians. Like I've been saying that my whole adult life, long before I was a libertarian, long before Putin came around. So Putin was actually a reaction to that with you know electing a strong man, so to speak, who will stand up to the evil U.S. empire. So rather than some master plan, first of all, people in jobs like the State Department, the, the first thing, their, their first drop motivating desire is the same as everybody else's, their own self-interest and their own self-aggrandizement, their, their own advancement up the ladder for more money. I mean, first of all, it's about money and, and, you know, people love to invent these romantic, I, you know, stories about how people just crave power. And I'm not saying that people don't love the power and get off on the power that they have, but at the end of the day, what a tyrant wants, and I said this maybe on the last podcast, is to live in splendor, to to acquire wealth he did not earn or she did not earn. And that goes for the tyrants in the State Department. But of course, they also have their you know, guiding agenda, their their worldview, and their worldview has been anti-Russian because letting Russia regain its former status, e- even though that's not realistic as the Soviet empire was what they were thinking in 1991. And of course, 30 years later, there's no reason for them to have changed that. They still view the Chinese as somebody they can go in and talk down to. And of course, Anthony Blinken and his fellow mobsters tried to do that early in the Biden administration, and the Chinese just laughed at him. Who do you think you are? You think you're the big bully again these days? Forget it. Get out of here. You know, they have no reason to. And even that humiliation by China did not cause them to go back and do any soul searching and saying, you know what? We got to kind of rethink all this. No. They don't have to. There's no accountability in government. They're never going to get fired. Look at Victoria Newland was incremental in the Iraq war. That total disaster, that total waste of millions of lives, millions of refugees, hundreds of billions of dollars. She just she got promoted. She's still getting promoted. She's behind the disastrous overthrow of the Ukraine government that was really the beginning of this war? Has she been punished? No, she'll never be punished. They just keep getting promoted. So why would they ever change their thinking? And this runs through every government department, every agency. Is anyone at the CDC going to get punished? What about all those restaurants, you know, uh, wiping down their tables and using plastic silverware and putting up all those plastic screens because the CDC recommended all that at one time. 
Anyone going to get fired? No. Everyone involved in that, everyone involved in, in mandating the vaccines, advising Biden to do so, even though we know they don't stop the spread of the virus anymore, they're all, nobody is going to be accountable for this. So you don't really need a master plan. I'm not saying these people don't have agendas. I mean, the bug thing is obviously real because, you know, you've got what's her name, the actress out there, the Australian actress eating bugs and saying how good they are on some very wacky video. I can't remember her name. Somebody put it in the comments. Very pretty. I think she was married to Tom Cruise, was it? Or yeah, it might have been Tom Cruise. I can't, I don't remember their names. But, you know, the people in Davos have an agenda. All right. But You don't really need one. Of course, everyone's always got an agenda. Cecil Rhodes had an agenda. Has anyone torn his statue down, by the way? I mean, I don't like this statue thing, but if someone's statue was going to come down after FDRs, Cecil Rhodes is irresponsible for an awful lot ideologically about what's wrong with the world. And let me remind you as a closing note, if, if you're disappointed, as I am, that the Republicans didn't do better in the midterms, and grab big majorities in the House and Senate, I'm disappointed because that's a great check on the president because history during my lifetime shows that's when government grows the smallest is with a Democratic president and a a Republican Congress. It grows the most with a Republican president, no matter who has Congress. I am disappointed, but remember everything that the people over in Davos, Klaus Schwab and his gang of of commies, techno-commies wants, everything that the Democratic Party wants, everything that the squad wants, this will all be put out there for the people to choose or not choose. No, no population as a whole is oppressed. So it'll only you'll only be subject to it if a majority of people choose it. So just keep that in mind. I mean, the, there was overwhelming support for the Federal Reserve System. There was overwhelming support for the income tax. There was overwhelming support for the New Deal. All right? You had a minority of Republicans, the great Republicans, who opposed it, including the great Joe Lewis, the boxer, who was was systematically destroyed financially by the IRS hmm, after his staunch opposition to the evil FDR and his New Deal. So, um, you know, you're going to get a choice, at least through your so-called representatives. And I'll remind you that TARP did not pass on its first try. This is back in 2008. For all you youngsters out there, this is the first financial crisis. Not the first, but the, the first one of this century and the biggest one since the Depression. They had a bailout for all the bankers and people were so against it and were calling their congressmen and yelling at them so viciously that, number one, the greatest thing I ever saw was congressmen coming into Congress and getting their turn at the podium with genuine fear in their eyes, a look they should have every day of the week, every week of the year, saying, I've been talking to my people, my constituents, and they don't want this. I'm voting no. And then they trot George W. Bush out. And he scares the living daylights out of you imbeciles with some 
story about the financial system collapsing. You know what would have happened is there would have been no more Goldman Sachs, Citibank, Wells Fargo. All the all the bad guys would have gone down and banks that didn't take risks on these mortgage-backed securities and other toxic securities, they would have taken over those assets. No, Nothing would have happened to the financial system. It's just the big guys would have been out of, out of power, financial power. So he scared everybody, and then the calls started to change, and it was only when the congressmen felt that they weren't going to be that they went ahead and passed TARP the second time around. So number one, I mean, just the embarrassment of anybody who changed their mind based on president we used to call the George W. Bush, not not really an, an intellectual heavyweight there, folks. If you were fooled by him, good heavens. But again, people got what they chose. They opposed it, and Congress voted it down. And when they stopped opposing it, Congress felt safe. They put it through, ripped you off for $800 billion, and then you had a nice depression anyway. So some people say we're still in it. So I know that's all over the place, but that's it for today. Uh, been very busy on a, 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 a separate business line that I'm pursuing right now. And so the podcasts have been generally two a week lately. I might get back to three a week. I have to, of course, address my paying members first and make sure I'm creating that content for them. If you are not already a supporting member of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and either join my Patreon or Substack at your pleasure. And I appreciate everybody, all the new people who have come on. I always mean to thank you and, and I thank all the people who are still there since I first started offering paid memberships. I'll be putting out some more content between now and Friday. And last but not least, as always, if you enjoy the music here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.